person you see sitting here next to me is one of the uh, key players in U.S. energy policy. Uh, he is a member of the House uh, Committee on Energy and Natural Resources. And, oh, sorry, Energy and Commerce. Natural Resources Senate, isn't it? That's sorry right. about that. Um, and also on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, one of my worries today was that perhaps we wouldn't have you here because of events that have taken place in Brussels. But we are delighted to have you here in any case, uh, and also to be able to bring to us perspective that reflects not just your work from the point of view on energy, but also your work from, from the larger uh, issues of intelligence and the geopolitical balance and how that plays out with these kinds of things. It's an enormous honor to have you here. Thank you. It's, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, it was a real tragedy. Uh, dozens killed. We don't know who they were. Brussels is a global city. I'm, I'm confident there will be people from all across the world we will find as victims of this tragedy. Uh, we just saw a minute ago ISIS is now taking credit. Um, I don't have confirmation that that's the case, but I think it, it does present another uh, another. Um, piece of evidence that this threat from radical Islamic terrorism is great and energy has an impact on their capacity to spread this threat throughout the world as well. Maybe we'll talk about that. Maybe we will. Um, let me ask you, when I started the conference today, I started by saying that, that I felt that in American uh, sort of collective memory, there are three powerful visual images that have really shaped how America sees the outside world and how it thinks about itself in relation to that. One was the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, the, the films of those battleships being blown up and smoldering in Pearl Harbor. Uh, the second one, 9-11 and the crash of the Twin Towers and the awareness suddenly of America's vulnerability again, in this case from long distance. And what I said was that the third uh, visual image which has had such a huge impact is the image of uh, gas lines. And if people pushing their cars to get in line behind the other dozen vehicles waiting for those few precious gallons that they might be able to get that day uh, when they went having driven past gas stations with no gas today. And it pr produced a kind of mindset among Americans which has lasted a long time, the sense that, America, that, that America's energy resources are limited and constantly diminishing, that the only answer to energy security is more conservation, uh, that the future would only, could only, uh, for, for economic growth, could only come through relying on non-fossil fuel sources of energy, and the faster we made that transition, the better. Um, now we see a very different situation, a very different view, energy abundance, thanks to the shale revolution. From your perspective within Congress, how have you seen the impact of that, of changing Congress's view about energy, about the relationship between energy and economic growth? That's a good question. Um, I remember the lines. I was, I was considerably younger at the time. But we had odd and even license plate days, right, in the state that I came from. You could only go to get a gas station on, on your day. Uh, I guess I'd answer your question by saying, as with most things in Congress, we're probably 15 years behind reality. Uh, it may be generous with respect to energy. That is, this idea of energy scarcity that you presented, that it was so deeply edged in the American mind, um, I think still uh, drives a lot of policy decisions in Washington, D.C. today, not only from Congress, but from uh, certainly the president that we have in the White House today. The, this vision uh, of 
uh, having to hold on to this precious resource uh, because there's not enough of it. We can't find it. I know, I know why that was ingrained. I mean, I remember reading uh, folks on energy issues in 2004 and 2005, so recent history. Some of the smartest minds in the energy world, some of you perhaps that are sitting here today, wrote that we were done. Right? I mean, you can go read it. Um, uh, we were finished. There was, no more, there was no more oil. It was finished. We had the peak oil theory. We had all, all kinds of ideas that we were somehow going to be limited. And what I think they all forgot to take into account, what Congress forgets to take into account today as a policymaker, is the American imagination. Uh, I, we, I hear people talk about oil. I just heard a little bit of the tail end. And we talk about it as a singular commodity. Well, anybody, I, I was in the business a little bit. I ran a company that sold oil and gas equipment. We were a tiny little non-player. We competed with companies like Lufkin and Schlumberger. Uh, I say competed. They didn't know we existed. Um, we were always hopeful they'd mention us sometime on their earnings call, but they, they never did. Uh, but I, so I was, and you have to remember, there's, there's high sulfur, low sulfur. This is, this is not a singular commodity. When you talk about transferring this product around the world as if you can blip it on a screen with a zero or a one, there's lots of complexity. There's transportation costs. There's regulatory friction. All of these things are enormously important. And they were all, all of those things from a uh, regulatory perspective were created in an environment where energy was scarce around the world. And the capacity to use American know-how and knowledge to help others develop uh, their energy resources around the world is something we should never take for granted as enormous comparative advantage that our country has. Uh, you, you all will remember, too, another uh, thing that's etched in my mind is that whenever gasoline prices go up, retail gasoline prices go up, uh, Congress calls in the CEOs of the largest oil companies in the world and demands to know why they're price-fixing and gouging the American people. I have urged my chairman, we have not done this, I suspect he won't, to hold a to hold a hearing to demand to know why gas is at a buck fifty in Kansas, uh, right? Why is it that they're just not charging enough, right? And and, and what I what I what I think when I say that it's a response to your question about policy responses in the age of of of, of available energy resources. Um, we shouldn't forget that the uh, political capacity to drive outcomes is deeply limited uh, when technologists and engineers and creative people are given the right policy situation, the right regulatory environment in which to go uh, create opportunity. And when I think of energy, I always think about the jobs that can come from it, the enormous creativity that created horizontal drilling and fracturing and all of the technology that sits alongside of it and that we let it here and we can export this to places around the world and do amazing things for the least amongst us in lots of parts of the country if we will get out of this mindset of energy scarcity. Yeah, the mindset of energy scarcity. And then also, too, the issue of kind of America as in dealing with energy as sort of fortress America, that uh, our resources are going to be ours and that export is a bad idea, whether it's oil or whether it's natural gas, but also the issue of energy cooperation. Now, I'm not going to ask you about XL Pipeline because I think I can guess what your position is on that. I am going to ask you about the bill that you've co-sponsored, however, in the House, having to do with pipelines and speeding up the, the, the implementation process and, and licensing process. And I was wondering if you could say a few words about that and then also give us your picture, since we're talking about geopolitics, of how facilitating the infrastructure for energy, I'm going to use the term energy sharing, but actually the transportation of oil and natural gas via pipeline infrastructure helps 
in terms of energy cooperation with our North American allies, particularly Canada, but also, of course, Mexico. Yeah, no, it's, uh, so uh, a two-minute summary, one-minute summary of the legislation. Today, if you build a natural or attempt to build a natural gas pipeline, you see a discontinuity in price in a particular market and say that it's underserved. Uh, you make a decision to invest uh, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in a natural gas pipeline. You could be years uh, from that great idea to delivery of product to the market. That's especially uh, egregious in the Northeast today, where you see uh, price at the gates of 20, 25 bucks in MCF compared to a spot market or Henry Ebb price that's 20% of that or 25% of that. And so the idea was just to shorten the process uh, to get uh, FERC and the other agencies that have approval authority with respect to the build out of natural gas pipelines to do so more readily. It doesn't take away any environmental review, it doesn't take away any rights under the Clean Air Act. It simply said, do your job faster. Frankly, do your job in the time that currently is required today. It set penalties in the effect that they didn't get the pipeline permit approvals. Either yes, or if you don't want the pipeline built, you can still say no, you can't build it. Um, I was attempt to speed it up. I thought this was sheer genius and we'd get complete commitment from all across the political spectrum. Who could possibly be opposed if you live in Massachusetts to driving the price of natural gas for your consumers down from 20 or 25 bucks in MCF? It turns out everybody in Mass every member of Congress from Massachusetts was opposed to this. Uh, so there are politics associated with this as well. Um, the idea here was simple. It was, we have a commodity, we need to get it moved around, we need to do it in a safe way that doesn't do damage to the environment, uh, sign me up for clean water and clean air, um, but we ought to get government to behave in a way that's consistent with what the private sector would do and how they would handle this responsibility. And uh, we've managed to get it through the House uh, with a handful of support from the Democrats, but, but no further. Go further. So what's your prospects for the Senate? Uh, zero. zero. The prospects in the Senate for in the immediate term are zero today. Uh, you have a, a group of folks that uh, are so concerned about methane leaks and climate change that for them a natural gas pipeline isn't about the environmental damage connected to the construction of the pipeline, the endangered species issues. It's not about local, it's about uh, these global issues that they would view as stemming from the increased ability to uh, transport a fossil fuel around America. And so these are uh, philosophical challenges that can't be overcome through a regulatory process cleanup. This was, a, from my perspective, a good government, non-political attempt uh, to build out these pipelines. And the opposition hasn't been from, should FERC's decision have to be made in uh, 300 days or 90 days? It was about, frankly, you know, if you build a natural gas pipeline, it's likely there'll be more natural gas. And that puts, that puts CO2 in the air, and that's bad, and therefore uh, slower from their perspective is better. So how do they see the alternatives then? I mean, given the fact that so much of, and I'm, I come back to the XL pipeline example because it's been so much in the headlines and in people's minds, including on the Hill, and such a divisive political issue, that when we consider that the alternative is shipping all of these commodities by uh, utilities, by rail instead, and we look at the horrendous accidents that have taken place in Canada, how do they deal with the, with, with the question arises, then what's your alternative? Uh, you're asking me to defend a position for which I find no logic. Um, <laughs> uh, so the response you'll get is more wind turbines. Uh, is that it? Uh, it's a little too cute, so, so strike that if there's somebody recording. Uh, but there's, look, there's a deep bias in this administration uh, against the use, consumption, transportation, 
pulling from the ground of fossil fuels in any capacity. So wherever it's the case that they can find a methodology to constrain that, whether it's through rules at OSHA, the rules at EPA, uh, the rules in the interior, on uh, federal lands, the list is long. Um, they'll do the best they can to say, no, we're going to come up with these things they call alternative energy. I don't even, I, I, er, I have no earthly idea what an alternative energy is. I always just thought when I flipped the light switch, I wanted the lights to come on. Um, but that's the, that's the notion. So it's, it lies at the root of the opposition to ideas like the one that I proposed in that or the opposition to the Keystone XL pipeline. Right? There are multiple pipelines today that's trans, that cross the Canadian border. Right? They exist already. I bet if you asked most Americans, they'd say, no, this is like the pipeline. That's got there. This exists already. This trade with Mexico and Canada is incredibly important uh, and exists and somehow became a political shiny object. Right? When Meryl Streep shows up, it's a bad day for, a lo for logic and reason. Right. This, we, we're now we're now into a we're now into a different organizing principle and a different rulemaking principle uh, when it becomes that deeply political and the, the stars from Hollywood start to show up. You're not you're no longer talking about energy policy. You're talking about something different from that. Can I ask you about uh, oil exports and LNG sure. exports? Sure. Um, up until about a year ago, when I was having meetings on the Hill. And the issue about would the Senate or would it not lift the oil export ban? And the feeling was is that we're stuck in the thickets and it just we may never get out. And then suddenly it happened and suddenly it took place. Um, how do you see the oil export uh, lifting of the ban? How do you see that playing out in terms of uh, a larger energy policy that involves going back to, to one of the key rationales for doing this, which was to support allies and to provide a means by which uh, they would have an alternative to depending upon certain kinds of governments who tended to use their natural gas supply as a means of sort of political leverage. Sure. Thinking particularly about Europe, sure. but also we could think about it in terms of, uh, in terms of other regions as well. I was surprised we were able to get that accomplished yeah. as well. So maybe my proposition has more. Maybe I'm just having. Well, I think we should be more. Maybe I'm just having thing. a bad day. Yeah. Um, look, we ultimately got that through uh, in a deal that covered hundreds of different things, and this was one of the items that we demanded as part of it. There was a uh, package arrangement, um, almost none of which had to do with energy issues on uh, financing government, and we were able to get it through. And. Uh, there was lots of opposition, but there were sweeteners for them. And so it was a political deal that was able to ultimately get this through. Uh, but I think also there was a recognition how important it is. Uh, you could see, right, I think oil was trading in low 30s, U.S. dollar, uh, WTI, low 30s at the time. And so I think there was also a feeling that the timing might be right to do that. Uh, many of the members who voted to lift the ban have been in Congress long enough that they voted to impose the ban. Uh, <laughs> fascinating. Right? I, we took their testimony. It's fascinating to go see. You should. Uh, people, people can learn. This is good. Uh, it proves that time. Does, sometimes wisdom does come with time. So it's a good policy. Uh, the LNG export work is important too. It all takes time. I don't know exactly how markets will respond to that. You heard some others predict this morning. I am, I am never very confident about predictions about price and markets and how uh, entrepreneurs will respond. I think uh, governments are horrific at predicting what that will be. But I do know. Uh, that creating these opportunities for export um, is the absolute right answer because markets do respond to supply opportunities. There's, there's no, no one can challenge that fundamental core prospect. And whether we end up shipping to Japan or to wherever, uh, time and markets will dictate. Um, but it is a good outcome, not only for our suppliers and the workforce that goes with that, 
and the good things that come from uh, the U.S.'s capacity to demonstrate that we're prepared to engage in a global marketplace, and so we see others behaving in a protectionist way. We no longer have to defend what was a horribly protectionist rule that we had in our own country, right, to demand that other countries share with uh, their allies around the world while we have a closed market for the export of our product was a difficult position to put our government in. And so I think now we can take a, a much more uh, clear, less hypocritical view when we're demanding that others open up their market on the purchase and sales side of energy products. Now, here's our situation. New president has been elected. We won't ask you who. Do you think I don't know anything about energy prices? <laughs> or the idea how that's going to unfold. But his transition team has brought you in yes. to ask about the three key priorities for a national energy policy going forward. It'll promote economic growth, but also promote American leadership in the energy promote energy policy. What, what, what are the three points that you would, that you would, you would emphasize? So I would, I would start with the regulatory uh, constraints that have been placed uh, on the capacity for us to uh, innovate and create. Uh, the second thing I would do is make sure that we had intellectual property rights. We don't think about that in the energy world uh, very often. Um, but if you look at the global players in the energy industry, uh, the guys who are out there on the cutting edge of technology, and we want them, all right, is our deep desire that they assist other countries around the world in the development of their own technologies, they need to be sure that their property rights can be protected. And so you'd see that as part of a trade deal. You'd see that in other places. We've got to make sure that our intellectual property is protected as we begin to advance American energy interests around the world as well. Uh, you know, <laughs> the list is long, and I only have one more. Um, Okay. I, I guess. I guess. I guess. I'd, I'd come back to this idea too. I would, as as the advisor to this president, make sure that this president was out communicating precisely where you opened to this conversation this morning, repeating around the world that America no longer is has to be Fortress America with respect to energy, and that we have this energy abundance. That is, we can invite risk takers to America to invest capital here because we have an affordable, abundant energy source, and we're going to allow it to come out of the grounds. We're going to do that whether it's on private property or on federal lands. Uh, we, are, we are going to use this affordable commodity in a way that creates opportunity for growth and manufacturing and investment in the United States of America. So I would ask him to use him or her to use his... Uh, uh, his bully pulpit to communicate that the United States is going to have a low-cost energy force, source for the foreseeable future, so long as this president's office uh, encouraging investment in the United States of America, so long as we have a policy where we have a president who says the most important national security issue to our country is climate change. Then folk, I mean, he said it. I, I went to my alma mater, West Point, and told the graduates of West Point as they were sitting there, 22-year-old kids who are out there ready to go blow things up and do a lot of really good work on behalf of America, he told them that the most important thing that they would face in their time as a career in the United States military was climate change. I can only imagine the conversations around the beer keg that night. Uh, so you have to make clear that we're going we're gonna to use this, this low-cost, affordable energy so that we can grow America and get our economy cranked back up again. When you see the uncertainty around the capacity of America to continue to develop this resource, I assure you that global capital providers uh, price that into their investments in America. So there's three. That might have been four. Yeah. Do you have time for a couple questions? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There. 
Congressman Ann Corn from IGS. Uh, yes, a, a somewhat related question. Um, now that the, the, the export ban has been repealed and uh, you can just make sure your microphone's there. You gotta go. That the export ban has been repealed. Do you think that some of the energy that the refiners expended in trying to keep the ban in place is going to be shifted towards Jones Act repeal? And if so, what's the likelihood of getting that? <laughs> That's a great question. And anybody who wants to get reelected would never answer that. Um, <clears throat> but I'm going to, in spite of the fact I do tend to be reelected. Um, so I think we ought to take a look at all of the, the rules that impact refiners and producers all along the supply chain. The Jones Act would be an important part of that. It is a big, complicated piece of legislation. I knew literally zero about it four years ago when I came here, but now have learned a great deal. There are pieces of it which, too, are anachronistic. There are elements of it which are not that we ought to keep in place. But yes, we should, we should certainly look at making sure that we reduce the friction associated with the transportation of energy commodities and, frankly, other commodities, too, around the world. I would, I would put the RFS in that same bucket, right, the renewable fuel standard. I, there are a whole series of regulatory impediments that reduce the freedom to produce this affordable commodity here in the United States and to transport it around the world. We ought to look not only at lifting the export ban, but we ought to look at all of them. Now, I probably won't be back here two years from now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Hi, Jill Shooker. Um, I'm an international policy consultant. Question. Um, I know you've been quite strong, Congressman, about the role that states, individual states, should play in terms of rules and regulations versus the federal government. And I'm just wondering, in your area, in Kansas, Oklahoma, that part of the country, there have been a range of studies that have been done pro and con in the sense of the impact of fracking on, mm -hmm. on earthquakes. And I'm just wondering what your level of concern is, if any, and what you think uh, needs to be addressed. Yeah, we, we should ensure that uh, uh, anyone who is operating an industrial process uh, accounts for all of the costs connected to that process. Uh, I think the studies to date are not conclusive yet. I think uh, anecdotally it is fair to say that uh, putting high-pressure water in storage places uh, has an impact. I prefer not to use the term earthquake. Uh, that's often a tectonic notion, right? Plates moving. <laughs> Um, this is different from that. This is, inc this is sliding, incidents, right? You have ground falling away. Either can certainly impact, e either can have, right? this, I'm going back to fifth grade geology now, so if I got it wrong, someone correct me. Uh, th this is different from that uh, in the sense of what's actually taking place in the ground. But importantly, it's not different if your home is sitting over that piece of real estate or as if your business is being impacted by that incidence. And we should do everything we can to get the technology right, um, such that if they're, they're Oklahoma seen, I think I've seen a 20% increase in, in measurable seismic activity, uh, measurable seismic activity. Uh, we like to, I know that everybody will call them an earthquake. Uh, maybe we need to come up with some new language to describe the phenomenon that's taken place there. Um, but it's important. We've got to get it right. Uh, we've got to make sure we're doing it in places that uh, don't present risk. And those who are responsible for causing the damage obviously have a cost that they need to address. I, that seems pretty, pretty straightforward to me. We've got time for one more. Congressman, thank you for coming. Bud McFarlane. Last year we made an agreement 
with Iran that enables them to develop civil nuclear power. We hope it doesn't go beyond that. Whatever one may think of that agreement, it has stimulated a, a lust in the other countries of the region for an equivalent capability. Equivalent that would, could go beyond power generation. The United States has essentially no current nuclear power industry. Has anybody in the Congress that you know of given thought to whether the United States really as a political move could seek to bring together people that do have nuclear power industries, but for us to insist upon controlling the fuel cycle, the fuel fabrication, the oversight of the operations, the recovery of the spent fuel, and disposal, or is that simply in a too hard file? Actually, I've, I've, that's, a, but that's a great question. Um, I've, I've heard folks, I've heard discussion about this in different settings in different places. The, the, I think the Iran deal did, did uh, uh, spark this conversation, right? We've, we've, we've entered into nuclear agreements, or the, I should say the global community has entered into nuclear agreements with many, many countries, and in many cases told these countries you can proceed, but only with uh, a fuel cycle that was not taking place inside of your own country. That is, the, the fuel would be transported in, be accounted for in a very detailed way, and then ultimately the, the, the product shipped back out. Uh, I regret that that's not what happened in Iran as well. Right? There was a fight at the beginning about whether or not they'd be permitted to enrich and at what level and how many centrifuges could spin. It's not the appropriate forum to, to recount all of the details there. Uh, but I think we would all, uh, actually I'll speak for myself, I would be a strong advocate for letting countries continue to develop their civil nuclear power uh, capacity. I'd love to see the United States do it in ways that we don't do it today as well. Um, but we ought to do that. But we ought to do it in a way that there are safeguards in place such that we don't let countries that have less robust regulatory systems than we do here in the United States um, that we can account for uh, the fuel in and the spent fuel back out. Um, it's a very difficult problem because it's not something we can even do just in the United States. Um, but the global community ought to think long and hard about how it is the case that we can promote more affordable nuclear energy, civil nuclear energy programs in many countries uh, while reducing the risk that the, uh, the dangerous components that make up the capacity to, uh, to perform that function um, don't ultimately present real risk to the world. It's a great question and one that's very important as you see. Uh, these Middle Eastern countries now all know, know the deal Iran got. And I should say that is countries all around the world are very deeply aware of what the United States has now sanctioned Iran to do. And I assure you they're going to be in line demanding very, very similar treatment. And some of them will decide to develop it on their own and others will decide uh, to purchase it in the open market, uh, increasing the risk uh, of a uh, nuclear incident many, many fold. On that happy note. <laughs> We're going to have to conclude. Thank you Congressman, very much. it's been an enormous pleasure. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much.